Hey there, I'm Heather Mulder, a former AmLaw 100 partner who, just five years into my legal career, found myself questioning, why work so hard to barely be squeezing life in? So that I wouldn't become yet another attorney burnout statistic, I decided to redefine success on my terms from the inside out, which is what enabled me to build a profitable legal practice while navigating my way through the challenges of two kids and two bed rests, the 2008 financial crisis, and a battle with breast cancer. What I learned is that you can build a successful legal career without sacrificing your health or personal happiness. And I'm on a mission to help you do exactly that. Join me each week for practical, unfiltered advice on how to successfully navigate the challenging legal market and succeed in both law and life. This is the Life in Law Podcast. Welcome, everybody, to another installment of the Life in Law Podcast. This is your host, Heather Mulder. And today we have a special guest. This is another guest that I met more recently back in the fall on my coffee chats. So earlier this year, I mentioned that I started doing coffee chats with people on LinkedIn. And if you are one of those people that are connected to me on LinkedIn and you've gotten a coffee chat invite, please take me up on it because you never know, you might end up a guest (laughs) on this show. And if you haven't gotten an invite yet, you probably will sometime this year because I have a lot of connections and it takes a while to get through them. But I met Allie Brack and loved her story and it really resonated with me and I know that it's going to resonate with the audience. So I wanted to get her on pronto and here she is. Welcome, Allie. Thank you so much, Heather. I'm happy to be here. So why don't we just start at the beginning? When did you decide and know you wanted to be a lawyer? Yeah. So I am not one of those attorneys who knew she was going to be a lawyer from, you know, age five. Um, I know a lot of friends of mine that are lawyers are, you know, they knew since they were children or maybe their parents were lawyers and they just knew they had this, this mission and this goal to become a lawyer their whole life. Um, I grew up in a family with no lawyers at all. Um, my parents were both in the air force right out of high school and were the first and first generation college students. So I wasn't going to be a lawyer, but I knew I was going to do something ambitious. So I was played every single sport growing up. Um, my my childhood is sort of marked in an achievement-oriented um, fashion. So I always was going 100 miles an hour, never quitting anything. I was, you know, ambitious alley is how I described myself. You know, in elementary school, you go around the circle and, you know, say, introduce yourself and say a word to describe you. I was always ambitious alley. I went to undergrad in Missouri at Truman State University to play volleyball. So I, I was a college athlete and I, my focus in school is really more on sports than on anything else. So I didn't spend a whole lot of time thinking about what am I going to do with my life when I was in college. And my senior year rolled around and I finished my final volleyball season and sort of sat there thinking, oh crap, what am I going to do now? I have no idea what my purpose in life is. And so I know I love to read and I know I love to write. So my mom wisely said, well, why don't you take the LSAT and see if you can go to law school? You know, that's what people who love to read and write do. And she always said, you know, you love to argue, so you're going to be great at that. (laughs) So I said, I sort of did it, you know, because I didn't know what else to do. And I took the LSAT um, in a room full of four other people in my tiny college town after doing like two practice exams at home and just taking it, you know, with a strategy of, you know, let's just see what happens. And if I get in somewhere, then maybe it was meant to be and then I'll do it. So I I scored highly enough to get in. 
um, to law school and I needed to go to a Texas public university because my mom had veterans benefits in Texas. So I got into Texas Tech University and said, you know, sure, this is another adventure. And everyone always says you can do so many different things with a law degree. So let's, let's give it a try. And um, so that, that's kind of my story into going to law school. And when I arrived, really, really nervous uh, my first day, everyone there seemed kind of like they knew someone else or they had already had multiple legal internships. It was very intimidating, but I quickly learned to love it because it was another competition. You know, mm. I spent four years in undergrad playing volleyball, being in competitive sports. And while I was burnt out on volleyball a little bit, I wasn't burnt out on being in a competitive environment because that was very comfortable for me. Just living in that constant state of, of pressure and needing to make sure that everyone else around you is, is working just as hard as you. So you need to make sure that you're on top of your game all the time. As stressful as that is on a day-to-day basis, that was my comfort zone. And so I was very happy to discover that law school was going to be an extension of that competitive nature that I have. So that was sort of my decision making process in going to law school. And we'll see as we talk more that that necessarily is not the best uh, decision making strategy is, you know, picking going to law school by process of elimination because you don't know what else to do. But that's really my journey into that decision. Well, and I have to say that although it probably seemed to you like a lot of people who choose the law were more like me, like they'd always thought or had long thought about being lawyers, a fair number of people who go to law school are like you, where they like, it's kind of a mm-hmm. process of elimination. I still don't know what I want to do with my life. I don't know what my purpose is. Hey, I'll go to law school. It's like an extension of that. And I I laughed a little bit when you said, oh, you know, my mom said, you love to read and write and oh, you like to argue, therefore you should go to law school. And a lot of people assume that's what makes a good lawyer. I don't necessarily think Mm -hmm. it is what makes a good lawyer. (laughs) I think it can help, but especially the argumentative part, right? So just the fact that you argue does not necessarily mean (laughs) it makes you a good lawyer. And I have to admit, I did that to my oldest son when he, he turned four. And I remember... Every time I, everybody calls them, you know, these kids have this terrible twos and whatever the threes are called now. For me, the four was the worst <laughs> for my oldest because he started arguing mm. with me constantly. Like it was a no, well, but what about, and he changed things just a little bit, right? And negotiate and argue through it. I'm like, holy crud, you're going to be a lawyer. <laughs> but yeah. and he used to think he wanted to be a lawyer. Now he's saying, no, mom, I don't. So I just... It it made me laugh a little bit because of that. Yeah, that gives me that gives me a little bit of um, a throwback to just a professor in law school who constantly said, "Okay, well, let's change the facts, and then what? <laughs> you know, you're on call. Let's change the facts. Let's always change the facts. Like, let's keep the facts the same, please." <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. So, okay, so you went to law school. You mm-hmm. how did you do in law school? How did things change for you while you were in law school, or did they? And then where did that lead? Yeah. So in law school, I finally, you know, it was the first time I experienced a shift in focus from being athletically minded. Like I was in school and undergrad. I always would joke that I'm majoring in volleyball. Like that is my major. That's why I'm here. But when I went to law school, my shift, my mindset shift was completely towards academics. So I sort of set everything else to the side in my life. And I had horse blinders on in law school, just absolutely focused in on succeeding academically. 
And um, as, as every lawyer listening knows, law school is a very highly competitive bubble. Um, you get one exam at the end of the semester that determines your entire grade and everything's on a curve. So you're competing with the people sitting next to you in every single class all the time. So it's a, a type A perfectionist um, competitive person's dream come true. <laughs> and so I think all of those traits in me were sort of exacerbated in that environment. And I, I completely bought into it. And so that part, that part of it was really fun because I loved the competition and I was doing really well in my classes. And when I was called on, it was exhilarating. It was super nerve wracking. And I was waking up at like 4:30 AM to go over my, you know, cases for that day to make sure that I'd thought of every question a professor could possibly ask me if I was on call. Um, and then when I did a good job on call, you know, it made my entire week and I would um, just sort of ride that high of achieving something or succeeding that I think I've been chasing for a really long time. I'm always looking for that. Um, yeah. And I, I would say this. So you've highlighted something that is probably one of the biggest assets. Yes. Yet also problems of most lawyers. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. you, you're hyper-competitive. Most lawyers are high achievers. They're hyper-competitive. The number of clients who come to me, and I do a lot of values work, especially with clients who are really not sure what their purpose is anymore and questioning, do I still want to do this? Do I want to do this differently? Do I want to leave? Do I want to do something else? That kind of thing, right? Mm -hmm. And I'd say a large percentage of them competitiveness is a value in some way, shape, or form. And it sometimes it's competitive. Sometimes it's to win. Sometimes it's to be the best. Sometimes, you know, it shows up in different ways in how they describe it. Yeah. It's this hyper-competitive high achievement. And when we're like that, we love to get positive feedback. It's what we call mm -hmm. gold star syndrome, right? We love mm -hmm. it. strokes our egos. It makes us feel good. And it like creates this feedback loop that then we spiral into and fall into and it works well in law school because it helps you do well. And it works well initially when you start practicing. But again, it helps you prove yourself very quickly and do really well and learn and stay hyper-focused. But eventually it starts mm -hmm. to work against you. Definitely. <laughs> right? So oh, yeah. just wanted to oh, point yeah. that out, that that's very that's normal a for point. a lot of people. Mm -hmm. and, it, and it was pretty addicting. And it, like I said, I think I used the word exhilarating already uh, mm -hmm. to be new in that process because the way I visualized it was that law school was this really clearly defined ladder and I'm at the bottom of it. And every single day there's a new rung that I can climb. And as long as I'm focusing on that next step in this really clearly defined ladder system, then I can be distracted from all these other tough questions that I was putting off asking myself, like, what is my purpose? What are my values? Who do I want to be when I grow up, so to speak? Um, what is the impact I want to leave on in the world um, one day with my professional career and personally, as long as I can just think about myself as achieving one thing at a time and climbing the ladder to the highest rung I could possibly can, then um, I can avoid asking myself some of those tough questions. And that is also a bit of a crutch. And so, we forget to ask, think, okay, where is that ladder going? And is that mm -hmm, what I actually mm -hmm. want? <laughs> And I don't, and I'm not, I don't care at this point, you know, in this moment, I'm, I'm happy with things the way they are in this exact moment. And I've always figured it out in the past and I'll just figure it out again and it'll be fine. Um, or at least that's the way I think I approached it at the moment, in the moment. So, and I also visualize looking back, you know, I've done a lot of work on myself and looking back at this time, I always visualize 
the way that I defined my worth and my worthiness in my life was always through achievement. So mm-hmm. I was only as good as the thing I achieved most recently. So there's always a, I think I thought of it like, you know, I'm kind of like Tarzan and I'm hanging from a rope and I have to swing to the next rope, which is, you know, the next achievement, the next achievement to keep myself from falling. And, you know, I've always lived that way. I, I'm hanging on to my latest achievement and I'm always looking for the next one to keep moving forward. And falling isn't an option. I don't know what's at the bottom of this fall. It's dark. I can't see what's below me. So I need to make sure that I'm swinging from one achievement to another. And law school is kind of the perfect, you know, goal or rope for me to swing and hang on to for at least three years until I can Mm -hmm. figure out what the next one's going to be. And I'm most scared of, you know, the scariest possible thing in my life is the thought of free falling and letting go of that rope or missing the next one. I think a lot in visual terms. Like I have a lot of visuals I use for myself that sometimes don't make sense to other people, but that's one I've always used thinking about how do I define success and my worth? And it's always based, it's always been based on those achievements and law school was kind of perfect for that. So I um, went to Texas tech. I got on law review. I wrote my article, got published. I was became on the, I got to the board of the law review as the managing editor. I did really well in school. I, you know, was I think 12th in my class and um, I got, all of those uh, worked really hard to get those clerkships that are always so coveted, you know, um, especially that clerkship after your second year that usually yep. leads to a job offer. So I got a good, a good clerkship that summer and then was in a really good place my 3L year to sort of decide where I wanted to go with my career. Um, I had all the options in front of me. I'd done well enough academically to set myself up to kind of be able to do what I wanted. i didn't know what I wanted to do though, which is the problem, (laughs) but I knew what I didn't want to do. I knew I didn't want to do family law and I knew I didn't want to be a litigator. Um, Again, it's, you know, my preference for reading, writing analysis took over and I said, I did really well in contracts. I did really well in business entities. So why don't I go after a career in corporate transactional law? That seems like a good fit for me. Um, Litigation is very obviously adversarial And what in law school they teach you is, you know, transactional law is the opposite of adversarial. At the end of the day, if you can close a deal, both sides of the deal are happy. Um, You may have different interests in getting to that deal closing and you have different paths to get there, but everyone's happy to be there at the end of the day. And so I said, you know, I'm not a very adversarial person. My mom says I like to argue, but I don't think I really want a, a career in arguing. So I went for corporate transactional law and um, the best job offer I ended up getting my 3L year was in St. Louis, Missouri at one of their, the biggest law firms in the city, which was, it's a, you know, it's in the big law and law 200, uh-huh. I think maybe 100. I'm not even sure where it lands anymore, but it was a big law firm, biggest in the city. And I got a job in their corporate and securities practice group. And I was so excited to become an adult. I mean, I, <laughs> I took, yeah. And just feel like I made it. I think, I think I thought, I didn't know what I thought was going to happen when I got there, but I think I thought I was maybe going to ride into the sunset into like a great career and I, and, you know, a life well achieved and, and just sort of uh, coast (laughs) into, you know, the rest of my happy life and live happily ever after. But that's not really how it ended up going. And I picked St. Louis because my partner at the time, someone I'd been dating throughout college. And then um, we got married in my, my 3L year, he was from Missouri 
I had gone to school in Missouri, of course, so I had connections to St. Louis. I'd been there before. I knew some people who lived there. So it sort of made sense for me to go there and it was the best job offer I had in corporate transactional law. So that's where we found ourselves after I graduated law school. Okay. So you checked all the boxes of success mm-hmm. at that point, right? Oh, all yeah. the paper success boxes. Mm-hmm. Very got important. The clerkships, yeah. <laughs> did law review, got the job offer, went off to work, thought you were riding into the sunset. Yep. It didn't <laughs> Very end, naive end up back being this. Well, I got to say, most of us are like that when we first start. I was like mm-hmm. that. And it's interesting too. So you chose to go to law school by a power of elimination. Like, mm-hmm. well, I don't this and this, but I really don't know what I want. But okay, I'm good at reading and writing. And so, and my mom says I'm good at arguing. So I'll go to law <laughs> school and figure it out. And then you got, you know, we're trying to figure out, well, what kind of law do I want to practice? Where do I want to go? Well, I don't want to litigate. And we do this, right? You eliminated some things right. immediately. But just because you could eliminate a few things doesn't mean you knew it <laughs> did want. Exactly. But at the time, the way I think I made my life decisions was not very intentional. It definitely was, well, I don't want to do this. So in a way, I'm not picking corporate transactional law. I'm picking to not do all these other things. And then, you know, in that begin those beginning stages, you don't think that you're really locking yourself into something so permanent. You think, oh, I'll try it. And if it's not good, then I'll just switch practice areas or I'll switch firms and it'll be it'll be easy. You know, it'll be like switching your major was in college and Mm -mm. you can just try something different. And it's just not like that. But I don't, especially if you don't have lawyers in your family, you might not be told that ever. You might not Mm -hmm. ever get that piece of advice. So, and I definitely was that person. So I started out working in um, corporate law in St. the firm in St. Louis. And I think it was probably one of the best experiences in big law that I could have had. I mean, the firm is, is fantastic. The people there, the partners I worked for, my associate mentor was fantastic. Um, everyone I worked there was very pro- worked with there was very professional, and the work was really varied. I was given opportunities to push my boundaries of what you know I thought I was capable of, but I always had support. They were very aware of diversity and inclusion, which was really refreshing. So I had a good experience professionally there, but my personal life in that first year in Big Law sort of fell apart. Um, mm. So, yeah, um, I was in St. Louis for probably a couple of months and I just started working at the firm when uh, my husband at the time like dropped this huge bomb on me that throughout 3L year and into the summer where I took the bar exam, he had been cheating on me and I had no clue. And it just sort of dumped my entire reality and world upside down. And meanwhile, I'm like a four, four months into my big first big law job ever and I just had no idea how to exist anymore. Like I had to sort of redefine what living day-to-day life was like because, you know, I thought I was this really smart, hotshot new attorney who saw everything coming five steps ahead. You know, like I was playing life like it was this game of chess and I was crushing it. You know, like I was always multiple steps ahead of whatever life was going to throw at me. And I think you know, being so sucked into that law school bubble and setting all these other parts of my life aside for a while, I realized I've been neglecting myself, my relationships with family and friends, you know, everything that goes on in your life outside of work and school. Um, I'd sort of been ignoring without realizing how that was going to come back to bite me. Mm. I think, and, and it wasn't, none of this is my fault. 
for sure. But I just early, early, early into my big law career, I realized like, okay, you need to be taking care of more than just your career right now. You need to be taking care of yourself. And that hit me like a freight train. So I had a really hard time showing up for work, of course, in the following months as I dealt with the fallout of that my husband revealing that this was going on and he just sort of told it to me to get it off of his chest, I think. Um, and I really had no clue. So I was questioning, you know, am I, am I not, I'm not as smart as I thought I was. How did I let this happen to me? I've worked so hard. How could this felt like such a failure? This felt like swinging from the rope, reaching for the next one and completely missing it and falling for the first time I'm facing yeah, I'm free falling and I'm facing failure with a capital F, you know, and I just had no context of how to deal with that because it hadn't really happened to me in my life before up to this point. So um, after, you know, it's a story for another day, but ultimately I just, just made the right decision that that relationship was not what I needed in my life and it needed to end and it did. And so my life sort of has been dumped on the ground and I have to take the pieces and put them back together one at a time. I'm starting to re-examine every aspect of my life, not just, you know, my romantic relationships. I'm looking around people at work and I'm thinking, who am I? How did I find myself here mm-hmm. in, you know, the city of St. Louis where, you know, I'm from Texas, but I somehow ended up here. And how did I end up in this job? How did I end up as a lawyer? How did I end up in corporate and securities work? Um, and I'm questioning all these things for the first time and I'm having my first experiences in going to therapy and having this, you know, objective third party professional examining these parts of my life with me and asking certain questions that I have not asked myself in years. I think I had to sort of mature and realize some things in my life, both person, both personally and professionally that. I might not otherwise have done until like 10 or 15 years into my legal career. So here's what I often find. This has happened in my life and it happens in a lot of my clients' lives, right? And why they reach out to me. Mm -hmm. It's really easy to get caught up on that ladder you were talking about. Never question where it's going. Mm -hmm. Never question whether you want it for all the reasons we talked about above, right? And we just keep pushing and we just keep going. But then Mm -hmm. something stops us in our tracks. And I love how you said you thought you were ahead of the game, five steps ahead, totally. Like, it's really interesting to me how often we get to that point mentally and something comes crashing down on us to tell us, "Uh -uh, Mm -hmm. no, you actually aren't there. You actually have other things to attend to and you need to pay attention to them. It's just interesting to me. We think we're in this space that we're really not. And then so life comes crashing down on us. And it seems like the worst thing in the absolute world when you're going through it. But oftentimes it can, can is the emphasis being depends on how you Mm -hmm. choose to deal with it, (laughs) be the best thing that ever happened. Because it it can force you to re-examine your life, re-examine, reconnect with those values, redefine what success actually means. So it's your mm-hmm. definition so that then you realize what your purpose is and you get on the right path for you. Yeah, exactly. I completely agree. And I think some people, if, if you're anything like me and, you know, you are achievement driven, whether you're that by nature or that's sort of been the nurture, the environment that you grew up in, to, and you, you were sort of coached to value achievement. 
and you, you can't ever quit. Like I could never quit things growing up. Like I had to give every sport at least two seasons worth uh, of a try. And if I still hated it after two seasons, then maybe I could quit. So I have just no experience with knowing when to quit things when it's good for me to quit. And I always say, you know, I'll, if I'm committed to something, whether it's a job or a relationship, I will drive that job or relationship into the ground until it quits on me. So I sort of, I'm one of those people I think that needs to have life come crashing down to wake me up to, you know, what you're doing is unhealthy and, you know, commitment, blind commitment and just commitment for the sake of commitment is not a good val. It's not a good quality to have, you know, it has to be intentional and it has to be aligned with what's healthy for you. So maybe you figured this out. Maybe you mm-hmm. haven't, but maybe this will help. Mm-hmm. There's a famous Winston Churchill quote about never quitting that a lot of people quote that they leave off the ending. And it is a completely different quote when you put the ending in. And I will try to find it and put it in the show notes. But it's about how you never give up, never quit, never quit. But there's an exception. There are times when we need to quit. And I would say that you're not really quitting when you've given your all and you realize it's not really going to happen or it's not where you want to yeah. be anymore. That's not quitting. That's pivoting. And if you continue to blindly go in that direction and it's the absolute mm-hmm. wrong thing to do, aren't you quitting on yourself? Right. Yeah. And I think uh, I had to wake up to the realization that I was living very inauthentically, but I had no idea what authentic- authenticity was for me. What, or mm-hmm. who am I even, you know, I was sort of waking up from living on autopilot for almost my entire life. So I decided to make some changes after I went through that um, experience and I moved back to Texas. I wasn't ready to, you know, leave law or anything behind. I think I was just waking up and asking myself some personal questions and um, diving into self-discovery and self-reflection in really healthy ways. You know, my therapist taught me about the concept of self-compassion for what mm. felt like the very first time, you know, of course <laughs> I know what that means, but she was sort of one of the first people to say to me along the lines of, you know, the way you talk to yourself, it's almost vicious. You know, you're, you're really self-critical. Would you talk to a friend of yours like this? Like, would you talk to someone you love this way? And the answer was, of course, absolutely not. I would never do that. It's, this is my defense mechanism, my coping mechanism to make sure that no matter what life does or throws at me, I've already, I've already anticipated it. You know, no negative thing can hurt me because I've already been so self-critical of myself that I can't be bothered by it. You know, it's it's a defensive mechanism. So I learned about self-compassion and my entire mentality was starting to shift, but wasn't completely there yet. The next thing I did was I decided to move back to Texas. I got a job doing a federal bankruptcy clerkship in San Antonio and I moved to Austin place I'd always wanted to live, but it just wasn't in the cards whenever I was in that relationship that I was in before because my ex didn't have anything. Like there was there just wasn't a job opportunity in his industry there. So it was not on the table. And so finally I'm in this position to be free to like, oh, I can finally go live in this city I've always wanted to live in where I have friends and more community because St. Louis is starting to feel like very lonely, as you can imagine. So I was in my office in St. Louis one day when, you know, one of my friends in Austin called and said, Hey, I'm signing a new lease and there's another bedroom in my lease. It's yours if you want it. And I just, you know, took a few minutes to think about it and said, you know what? Yeah, this is, this is now or never. We're doing this, do this thing for you. 
and it was a great decision. I got the federal clerkship lined up shortly after that by, you know, another lucky set of circumstances. A friend of mine had that clerkship and the person who was going to take her place that fall happened to call like two weeks before and say, you know, he was going to renege on the federal clerkship, which is like unheard of. No one ever <laughs> reneges on a federal clerkship, but this guy did. And so she said, you know, can I give the judge your resume? I know you're thinking of moving back to Texas. And so I said, that's actually perfect because I'm signing a lease in Austin. So let's do it. I took this leap of faith and then the road sort of rolled out to meet me after I did that. So I moved to Texas, had a great experience in my clerkship, but was able to sort of take a step back when I was working for the federal government and have a little bit more free time to myself for one of the first times in my life. You know, I wasn't going a hundred miles an hour because when you work for the federal government, it's very sort of nine to five, you get certain federal holidays. It's just a slower um, pace of living, which is really nice. And I got to continue going to therapy and, and asking myself questions about what my values are and what I want out of my life. And ultimately through those discussions with my therapist, I, I discovered, you know, my two top values are autonomy and authenticity. I want to live a life that I've created space to be completely authentically myself. You know, I don't have to live a performative life anymore. I can mm -hmm. do it completely for me the way that I want to do it. That feels good showing up every day in my own skin. And then I also want autonomy. Um, I've always been very independent and I don't thrive in environments where I have to answer to someone all the time. Like that feels a little bit suffocating to me, more than a little bit suffocating to me. I, I kind of want to do things on my own, my own way. And so you can see why being at a law firm and recording what I'm doing every in six minute increments yep. and reporting it to someone is not necessarily, it's, it's incompatible with uh, that value. What's but funny is a lot nice. of lawyers would tell you these are values of theirs as well, and yet they still do it. And yep. I, I think some of them are incorrect in what their values are. They don't actually know. But there are mm -hmm. people who really hate it and really unfulfilled by it. And part of it is that. And it's it's yeah. hard for them to figure it out because they think it's a bigger mm -hmm. in, like cultural or, you know, but then they can't like quite pinpoint it. And ultimately it's that they're in a system where their values just don't work. And then they think, well, then I can't yep. be a lawyer, which is actually not true, by the way. There are other ways to lawyers. So if that's you, you 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 might need to step back and take a little time and reassess and figure out, okay, I need to reconnect with my values. Maybe I never was connected or I never really thought about them. Like think about what they are and what they mean to you. And if you need help, get help. You know, there's coaching. Mm -hmm. I, I do this work with my clients and therapists and, you know, whatever. It depends on where you are and what you need. But do that work and figure it out because then we all think it's just so scary and it's just so hard. And I just, I don't know what that means. Well, once you figure that out, the path gets a lot clearer. You start to figure out at least that first step that you can take to, to try to figure it out for yourself, what, where you ultimately want to be. Yeah, definitely. And I call it, you know, the term I like to use is floundering. Like sometimes you just need an era, a time and an era in your life where you don't have a goal. You don't have a destination. Your horse blinders aren't on and you're not focused on one particular goal and you're marching, you know, a death march towards that goal. Sometimes you just need to let go of the reins, relax and see where the current takes you. And that is 
very difficult for highly driven, motivated, (laughs) ambitious people. It's hard for them to see the value in that, I think. And I definitely, at this stage in my life, was would consider myself one of those people. When my clerkship ended, and what I still was like, okay, I did, I didn't give law and private law firm practice the shot that it deserves because. I did really like my last firm in St. Louis. I ended up leaving it more for personal reasons than mm-hmm. you know being unhappy in the firm. So I wanted to go back into doing corporate transactional law. And I, after my clerkship, started at a, a mid-sized sort of regional law firm here in Austin doing sort of similar work, mostly M&A. At, at that job, I got to have a ton of really valuable experiences. So I was the only associate working for three partners in their corporate group, which I welcomed that challenge wholeheartedly. I thought it would be really cool to have a little bit more responsibility and um, more client-facing work, which I definitely got, which is good and really helpful. I developed a lot professionally in this role. But what I didn't realize, I think naively, and it's so obvious looking back, but being the only associate means you're going to be groomed to take over all these clients one day. You know, mm-hmm. you're definitely, you're the heir apparent. And that's the goal is very long-term you know, we want you to be here a decade at least, or maybe more. And you maybe ideally spend your entire career here. And I don't think I had the ability to see that far ahead to commit to that. I started in that job having experiences where my boss would tell me, you know, one day when you're doing this, or when one day when you're leading these calls X, Y, and Z, and I'm doing a good job, I'm doing all my work, but I'm feeling extremely overwhelmed by the pressure of what that's going to mean. And then I started to examine, you know, my boss's day-to-day life. And he really, really loves M&A. He loves corporate law. And I admire that so much. And I thought, you know, he comes, he would come into the office on the phone. Like he would be walking in the door on the phone and he'd walk out the door on the phone every single day and then go home and work some more. And it seemed like it energized him. You know, the, the constant fire drills, the constant client emergencies, He just thrived on being that advocate, that counselor that was there to save the day and could think on his feet and be super witty. He would give me these really scary, complicated projects, you know, like, I don't know, I'm not going to think of an example off the top of my head right now, but I just remember sitting in his office feeling a little bit overwhelmed by like, okay, you're going to lead the entire due diligence side of this deal and just let me know if you have questions. And I'm like, "Um, I have so many questions, (laughs) but... um, And, you know, I'm there, I'm there because I want that responsibility because I want to be, to really feel like a lawyer, right? Like, you know, I'm the one counseling clients. I have a contact, I'm forward facing, but he would give me these tough projects. And then he would always say like, this is going to be fun. This is going to be so fun. Um, And just the use of the word fun, I would be sitting there thinking like, that is not the word I would use (laughs) to describe this kind of work is fun. But um but perhaps it, that's a anything, sign he's doing the right thing for his, what exactly. he defines success as and where his values are, but you weren't. What I love about this is exactly. it sounds like, like you allowed yourself though, to try things out, to see. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. as you said, flounder, it was like your floundering stage of life where you were kind of like playing around to see, well, was this what I want? Is this what will work? I thought maybe I liked it. And you started to discover, hmm. No, mm-hmm. even though this is yeah. my enjoyable work, I kind of like it. I don't love it. I don't, I don't want yep. to be where you are one day. How, mm-hmm. like, how did you come to the conclusion? Okay, this is not the place for me. And then how did you figure out where that next step was? 
Oh yeah. So it really was that difference in the way I felt about the projects I was doing and the way I could tell my boss felt about it. You know, he's describing them as fun. He seems super energized. He's ready to go every single day. He never seems like he's out of gas, even though he's working so much. And on the flip side, I'm, I have like this constant battle with this pit in my stomach every single day. I mean, the very best days I would have at work, like the best way I could describe them, my very best days where I left feeling satisfied. Like I maybe left, I left work feeling like, Oh, I did a lot of work today. I accomplished a lot. I did a good job. I'm satisfied with that. But then I would immediately switch over to dreading the next day and battling Mm. that pit in my stomach again. And those were like the best days. So, you know, the worst days I'm sitting there feeling like I don't, Oh yeah, huge red flag. But you know, the way I've lived my life, I don't really think I had the tools to recognize that there are other avenues. You know, I'm in the mindset of I'm hanging onto this rope and I can't fall and I can't fail and I can't quit. So my only option is to just plow forward. Um, well, what made so, you finally say, okay, I've had it. It's time for me to allow myself mm-hmm. to fall, to flounder more, to like, like just, I have to do this yes. to figure out what it is I actually want. It was a couple of things. So it, and it always is little things that end up breaking you, I think, but it was a, a comment that someone had gone to France on a family vacation, an attorney, and then two days into this trip, he had to come leave France, come back to the States to deal with a client emergency. And at the time I was planning on going on a trip to Utah with some friends. And I just was comparing it to that. And I'm like, I don't think I would ever, I don't want to live a life where I might have to drop a huge trip to come back and deal with an emergency fire drill that it seems like 80% of the time they're not really emergencies. They're things that could be dealt with the following business day or could be handed off. But the the culture is such that you have to put perform and you have to be, you know, it's just client service above all else, above even your mental health, your your personal well-being. And there's ways I think to handle those professional situations in a healthy way and there's unhealthy ways. And I thought that that comment the way it was said was very unhealthy. Like it, it right. was said in a way that's like, he had to leave France and you will too one day. Like this is going to mm-hmm. inevitably happen to you one day. And I, you know, my knee jerk reaction is like, no, it's not. It's absolutely not going to happen to me one day. And then shortly after that comment was made, I, you know, I spent a lot of time thinking about that, but this trip to Utah that I was had planned for a long time was coming up and we had a deal closing around the same time. And things started blowing up in diligence. And it was like, I hope you don't have to miss your trip because of this deal. And mm-hmm. I was like, that's not even an option. Listen, missing this thing is not even an option. It's not going to happen. I'm not going to miss it. And then when I went to Utah, I had a great trip. Anyway, I didn't stay home to work. I went on the trip anyway. And guess what? Everything was fine. But um, while I was on the trip, I decided finally time to listen to what some of the people in my life had been telling me for a while already, which was this lifestyle, this job isn't healthy for you. And you deserve to take a step back to figure out what you want to do. And it reminds me of what you were saying about a lot of lawyers are in these in certain jobs or certain areas of practice or in the profession in general, and they're miserable, but they don't do anything about it. And maybe it's because they don't know what to do instead. And I didn't know what to do instead either. And that was what kept me there for as long as it did. And that's the reason I hadn't quit yet anyway. And I was so scared to quit because I was afraid of not knowing what was going to come next. I didn't have another job lined up. 
I didn't think I wanted to do law anymore after this experience, but I had no idea what that next thing was going to be. And for someone like me to quit with no idea what's next is the, it's free falling. It's my worst fear come true. And I'm terrified of that. Like, what am I going to say to my boss when I tell him I'm quitting, but I'm not quitting because I am lateraling. I'm quitting because I don't want to do this anymore. And I don't know what I want to do. I think most lawyers know what needs to be done. It's mm-hmm. just, and that because what's really stopping them, they claim they don't know, so they don't do anything about it. But what what they know to be true is that they have to try other things that are very different, that are scary, yeah. that might end up being wrong, mm-hmm. might end up being seen as failures or mistakes by other people, but really aren't if they learn from them. Because that's how you get clarity, right? You start taking a step in a different yep. direction and decide, is that really yep. what I want? But they're too afraid of what others will think and of the unknown. And therefore, Mm -hmm. they don't do anything. Yep. And the sunk costs that come along with it. And um, ultimately, I decided it was time to just start acting in the direction of what I wanted my life to look like in small, Mm -hmm. tiny steps. But (laughs) I had to take a big step to get started, which was leaving this job behind. But it was really, really scary to quit. Because it felt like more than quitting this one job, it felt like quitting on everything I had done in my life to build my myself up as a lawyer, as a corporate lawyer, as a successful person. It felt like I was quitting all of that and just right. throwing it in the trash, which isn't necessarily true, but that's how it felt. Um, and I, I, so I, I quit when I got back from Utah and I was just honest about it. I just said something along the lines of, I can't remember exactly, but, um, you know, I, I just don't think this is the right fit. I think this is a great job opportunity, but it's a job opportunity for someone else, someone who will want to stay here and, and be doing this work and be the heir apparent in 10 years, you know? And I, I know for sure it's not me. So it's better to tell you guys this now rather than later. And I'm going to take some time to figure out what I want to do next. And for all the fear that went into doing that, the only feedback I got from everyone was positive, which is crazy. <laughs> like, my boss, I was so scared to tell this to, what took it very well and was happy that I was honest and authentic with him about this. And then, you know, other partners I talked to whenever I was getting ready to leave said, you know, this is really wise of you. I wish I had taken some time to think about what's really right for me when I was your age. So good on you for doing that. I know you're going to land in a good place. Let me know if I can help you. So again, I took another leap of faith and here I am free falling, but it actually ended up being a pretty good thing for me. So I took a couple of months off in the summer. I called it my summer sabbatical and AKA or my floundering era, in other words, <laughs> and just for the first time in my life, let myself not have a plan, which was actually really scary and difficult at first because I got bored very quickly, but slowly and steadily was able to sort of unwind that iron tight grip that I've had on my life one finger at a time until mm-hmm. I'm able to sort of float freely and create space and room for growth in my life. I have zero regrets for taking that time off. It was probably one of the best gifts I could ever have given myself. And I'm glad that I did it when I did it instead of waiting another decade or so to do it. So well, and then the um, sunk costs just get worse. Yeah. The longer you wait, mm-hmm, we all don't mm-hmm. do it because of that sunk cost, right? Which is a fallacy. Yeah. Because the longer you do it, the worse that gets. Right. And the bigger chain mm-hmm. it becomes on you. And so you might as well do it 
as early as you possibly can when you know you're not on the right path. And yeah. I would say not everybody has a totally free fall. Like there are other options mm-hmm. if you don't financially have the ability to do that. You can hire right. a coach to help you start figuring these things out and then come up with some intentional actions that you could take that where you try out other things or you do other things or like me, I knew I wanted to leave law, but it took me two years to fully leave because I wanted to, I had a family and I needed to be financially stable. And so I was doing background work on the other thing that I ultimately wanted to do, which made me happy while I was making the money I needed to make in my practice. So like there are other ways to go about this, right? But I do support that you have to flounder some, you have to take some steps that you're not sure about. I Mm -hmm. started my coaching practice thinking I didn't want to work with lawyers. And now I work 98% with lawyers. And it's primarily a lawyer-based practice at this point. Although there are non-lawyers who reach out to me who are good fits. Like I don't work with just lawyers, but mostly that's who I market to, right? And I never thought I would. And I never thought I'd do business coaching. I thought I'd always do mindset and work-life balance coaching. Now I do both. And I love my business coaching Mm -hmm. clients more than I ever thought I would. And like, so like you take on new steps and you do new things over time, but you you can't get to that place where you're actually fulfilled and happy and like feel like you're in the right place unless you take a couple of first steps and see see if it sticks, <laughs> right? Yep. Um, for me, I needed to create space for other other things in my life to grow. So I think when I was still in law, especially at the last firm I ended up working at, I had all these ideas of what I wanted to do instead, but when you're overwhelmed and you're stressed and you know you're in the wrong sort of place for you, anything sounds better. Right. And, you know, I think I was, you know, anything sounds better than this. If I, I'll go be a teacher, you know, I'll go be a bartender, I'll do anything different and that sounds good. But ultimately, I don't think I wanted, I didn't want to run away from law and into something else. I wanted to walk calmly and intentionally towards the next thing from a place of peace and stability and clarity. I could not have done that if I didn't take a step away from the ladder that I was on. So I needed to take a step back, relax, flounder a bit and figure out what felt good for me and start acting in that direction next. So this summer I was able to take that time off. I traveled a little bit. Sometimes I just stayed home for a few weeks and and enjoyed living in Austin. I would go on walks on the green belt every day and, you know, write in my journal. I would meditate. I would visit with friends. I would feel, start to live in a way that felt really grounded, um, down to earth and reconnecting with just the person that I am without any achievements, without a job, without an identity tied to being a lawyer, just who is Allie today? And that felt that felt really good. And I would say you do, even if you stay where you are, you have to find a way to create mm-hmm. space for yourself. And there mm-hmm. are ways to do it. And you need to be intentional about it. That's why I would say, you know, either if you can step away completely and create a massive amount of space, that's great. If you can't, yeah. find somebody who can help you do that so that you can figure these things out. And I love that you said you meditated and journaled. So how did meditation and journaling mm-hmm. help you through all of this? I have been a journaler my entire life. I think the first thing I ever wanted to be when I was asked, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up was an author or a writer. I've always wanted to do that. I would have this creative side to me that was forever gobbled up by the need to achieve, to feel worthy. 
But when I was able to take that step back this summer, I started exploring those creative sides again, those sides of me that are slower and need freedom from perfectionism in order to thrive. And so I started um, journaling again. I hadn't journaled in a while. I started writing what is turning into sort of a book slash memoir about my experiences going through the decision to quit and leave law behind and then meditations that I had through the summer on what to do next and how to redefine yourself and how to reimagine your life when you had been so achievement oriented, you're, you know, and sort of driven to be something that wasn't authentic to you. So I went on that journey of writing through my own life and I had some experienced landscape painting just for fun, nothing crazy, just purely something I do out of joy. And I was able to spend a lot of time sitting outside or sitting in my room with the window wide open, just painting. And that process is very, very therapeutic for me. I can go back and read some of those journal entries from that time or some of the chapters I wrote in this book at that time. And sometimes I'm, sometimes I cry reading them, just thinking Mm -hmm. about how far I've come and the place that I was in mentally, whenever I was so stressed out and I would come home from work crying and thinking, you know, this is it. I can't, I'm not doing this anymore. You know, this isn't what life should be about. So sometimes I get emotional reading and I'm back and what it gives me is just further clarity. What's right for me and what I should, the directions that I should be going instead. And, and that I made the right decision in deciding to ultimately leave corporate law behind. What I love about journaling is it gives you space to just start like allowing the thoughts the feelings, the things that are causing stress to get out so you can kind Mm -hmm. of see them on paper. And then usually once you start doing that, it allows you to then open up more to the other things that are back in your mind. Like, I don't really want this, but here's what really makes me happy. And here, you know, and it can take a while for all of that to start coming out. But if you're consistent with it, it can be a really great way. Now, not everybody's meant for journaling, but if you like to write, it might be something that, could really really be helpful because it is very therapeutic. Yeah, and I definitely. love the journal, but I don't do it daily. It's like kind of something I do when I really feel like I need to, or like every so often. And I find it really helps with like creativity and processing thoughts that I kind of know are in the back of my head. But you know, you get busy and they're like in there and they get stuck in there, and then it helps mm-hmm. me get them out and see them, and then see the connections between them. <laughs> yes. Yes. So yeah, um, that, I also love that about journaling. I mean, I'll just open the page and then I'll just start stream of consciousness, writing out whatever is in my mind yep. and I'll just keep on going, keep on going. Sometimes I have to listen to music to really like quiet the other white noise in my mind. The, the things that are on the forefront of like, oh, I need to go to the grocery store. Oh, <laughs> like, you know, my laundry is probably done. I should probably go get that. Like the day-to-day moment thoughts, like something to drown those out and then tap into what's going on behind the scenes and then just let that stream of consciousness consciousness go. And every one of those types of journal entries, I always say they age really well. So Mm -hmm. you can come back to that journal entry a week later and get insights on what was really going on in your mind that you had no idea was going on when you wrote that out. And so much clarity can come from journaling um, and meditation as well. And that's been really valuable for me. 
And I've got so, a couple of-, of episodes where I've talked about like journaling and meditation and all of that. Mm-hmm. So I will mm-hmm. try to put those into the show notes to help people if they're interested in going back and kind of like learning how the how to's <laughs> of how to get started yeah. if, you, if you haven't. Through the process of writing and quieting my mind and my day-to-day life through the two, two and a half months that I spent off this year, I did so many exercises about in my journal about writing out the things that I want my future life or my, in my current life to look like on a day-to-day basis. Like what kind of work am I doing? Where am I every single day? Am I working from home? Am I in an office? What city am I in? you know, what kind of clothes do I get to wear to work? Do I want to be in a suit anymore? Do I want to be in business casual? Do I want it to be okay for me to be in my sweatpants every day? Like I I broke things down to very minute details and then would come back to that a week later, re look at it again, reevaluate and think, okay, what kind of things can I do to structure my life and my career so that I can have all these things every Mm -hmm. single day. And, and another one, you know, it comes back to my values of, um, autonomy and authenticity. You know, I want to be able to connect with people and I want to be vulnerable in my interactions with coworkers or clients every single day. I want to show up to work as exactly who I am. And I want the freedom to work remotely. And I want the freedom to be able to travel and live a life that's not restrained by a billable hour requirement or FaceTime, I guess. And so it's like, well, what is that going to look like? You're a lawyer, Allie. There's not a whole lot of options for things that look like that. So I flipped back to an old journal entry that I'd written around the time I was moving to Austin from St. Louis, and that would have been 2019. And I was also pondering what I would do with my life in that journal entry. And what came to mind was becoming a therapist and specifically a therapist that focuses on providing services to people who are highly driven, professional Um, people like myself who maybe have no experience with therapy and they don't know how to be self-compassionate and they are sort of driving themselves into the ground with work and they're feeling like, you know, perfectionism and achievement is what tethers them to their worth and what defines their worth and haven't really had the chance to slow down and discover who they are and who they want to be. That is, I had this long journal entry talking about that, how I think that that would be a lovely life calling for maybe someone else, someone else should be doing that, <laughs> focusing on lawyers. And I read that again during my career break and was inspired and sort of put pieces together and compared that with my recent writings of what do I want my life to look like? And I said, well, hey, why don't I think about going this direction? And I apply, I did research, of course, and like a good lawyer, I did all my research and I applied to a school, Texas State, that fit you know, my life and my goals and the program is really good. And I applied to start this spring, this January in their clinical mental health counseling master's program to become a therapist. And I kind of said, well, we'll see what happens. We'll see if I'm accepted. We'll see how it feels when I get that decision back. And if it is a good, you know, if I'm accepted and it feels good, then maybe that's the right thing for me. And then while I waited for the admittance decision, I again, did a ton of research and networking. I reached out to life coaches as well as any therapist turned, any lawyer turned therapist that I could find. I would reach out and I'd say, hey, I'm interested in doing what you're doing. I'd love to talk to you about what your day-to-day life looks like in, in work. And, you know, is there a market for therapeutic services geared towards lawyers? Or even if it's like, you know, 60% of your clientele are lawyers, I want to know what is that like? And 
a lot of the, the folks I was able to talk to and connect with said, you know, sometimes I have to turn people away because there are so many lawyers that when they find out you're a therapist who has the, a legal background, um, a lot of people reach out wanting to connect with you and, and talk to a therapist who understands where they're coming from. Yep. And so I was like, okay, so there's potential for some sort of niche here. It seems like there's a need. Of course there's a need. I mean, every state in the country you gotta has know there's a need. Uh, yeah. lawyer's <laughs> assistance program. So there's definitely a need, of course. Ultimately, I was like, let's go for it. Let's let's do it. And so I got accepted to the program this December and accepted nice. it. You know, of course, I'm, I'm I enrolled and I'm going to start this January. So that's exciting. Um, pivoting to something a little bit more authentic to me, and yeah, it's exciting. It's nerve wracking to start. You know, anything new, but change is good, and it's it is an exciting type of um, nervousness. It's a good nervous because the nerves aren't attached to dread the way that I sort of felt, you know, I was always nervous to go into work every day. I always felt like dreading the next day in corporate law, but these nerves have no dread associated with them, just pure excitement and alignment. So that's where I ultimately landed after my time. There's a difference between the dread to me is more anxiety inducing, whereas exciting nervous is a different, like the kind of nervousness you get mm-hmm. when you're going to go speak on a stage or, and the, yes. that's the kind of nervousness that you can transform into excitement and adrenaline, mm-hmm. you know, getting that adrenaline from it. If it's the other kind, you can't do it. It's like a yes. drain. It's you get the pit of the stomach or the weight on your shoulders, which is how I felt in my first law firm at the end when I realized it wasn't the right fit and I needed to change law firms. So there is a difference and it's important to pay attention to that. And as we wrap Mm -hmm. up, I just wanted to note that you are a perfect example of the power of two things. Number one, journaling. How journaling is seriously therapeutic to stress management, reduction of anxiety, and also though for getting clarity and how it's not just about the, the act of journaling, but about going back and taking stock over time because you can see things more clearly after a while. And so I would say to anybody yeah. who journals out there to make sure you occasionally go back and look at it because I think you're going to find more answers there than you realize. And then the second thing is the power of networking and how important networking is. Um, and you never, ever know how you're going to benefit from it, but you really, really will benefit. Whether you are networking for business development, whether you are networking just to get to know more people, whether you are networking because mm-hmm. you want to get into a new area, it's going to help you <laughs> so much. Yeah, exactly. And I think some advice I would give in addition to just reaching out to anybody that you think is doing something that you might be interested in doing, you know, lawyers know that lawyers love to talk about themselves. You know, every, there's not a single lawyer that doesn't like to talk about themselves. So that applies, that's a human trait as well. So even outside of the legal field, people like to talk about what they do every day. And if you show interest in like, Hey, I'm really interested in what you do. Um, I think it might be a good fit for me. Can I pick your brain? Lots of people love to hear that and want to share what they're doing with other people and, and have a good impact on the folks that they interact with and they, who whose paths cross with theirs. And so that's a don't really, be afraid to reach out to people. No, don't be afraid. And that's the technique, yeah. the best technique to use if you think you want to pivot because it's going to get you an in with them very immediately. They're going to share a mm-hmm. lot with you and then they're going to want to return the favor by helping you. And so you're not asking yeah. for anything up front. Yeah. 
but then eventually yep. they give you something and you're going to have some great connections for the future if that's the area you want to go into. And so, mm-hmm. and you might get some great mentors that way and you might, you know, and so it's like the, the, especially yeah. the key to networking when you think you might want to pivot or need to change course in some way, shape or form, reach yep. out to people who are in those positions that you're thinking of going into first and foremost. Yeah. I, if you go that route, you're going to get a lot further faster. A hundred percent. And you've touched on this a couple of times um, so far, but there are professionals like yourself and therapists as well out there who are ready, willing, and able to help you navigate you being any lawyer listening to this, who's questioning what's going on. And maybe they just want to switch practice areas. Maybe they need to go to a different firm. Maybe they need to leave law together and they're not sure. There's a, a, there's an army of professionals out there who are equipped and, you know, ready to help you navigate that process. So go get help from them because that changed, definitely changed my life. I have no idea where I'd be if I hadn't started um, asking for help and getting objective third-party professional insight on what was going on in my life. And there's so many people just go to the, go to the person you think you need most, the, the type of person and to somebody who you are drawn to, because you do need some level of trust with them. You need to feel connected to them very quickly yeah. in order to be as open and honest as you need to be <laughs> and vulnerable. Yeah. It's a very vulnerable thing to do, but go there and, and get that help. I think lawyers are very sometimes too reticent to go get help thinking it's a weakness. Yeah. But as I've said this before, I'll say this again. We are all here for different purposes. We have all different strengths and skills, and we're here to utilize them for the benefit of others. You have certain strengths and skills out there that you utilize for your clients. Allow other mm-hmm. people to use theirs for you. It's how we connect deeply yeah. with people. It's how it's what fulfills us, and it's what we're meant for. And so that doesn't mean you're only meant to serve. You're also meant to be served. <laughs> so. Yep, exactly. And And that those people can help you do the inner work to figure out with clarity what you want, what's going to be healthy for you, um, and whether you need to make that change. And if you got get to a point where I got where I knew I needed to make a change, but I was just fearful of doing it, don't let the fear be the only thing keeping you from pivoting, changing something, or stepping back. Because you touched on this as well. Sometimes you are not in an emotional, financial or just life circumstances position to do a a big change. Like for me, quitting and taking some time away, I'm very aware that, you know, not everybody's going to be in that position where they can just do that. But if you are working with professionals and the people who you love in your life, and you're thinking about these things and you realize that the fear is the only thing standing in your way, don't let that be you. I mean, it's okay to just start acting in the direction of the life you want to live because you deserve it. I mean, Every single person, whether you're a lawyer or not, deserves a life well-lived, not just a life well-performed because there's a big difference. That is true. And the fear goes away once you start taking actual steps (laughs) because most of Mm -hmm. it is bent, is pent up inside of your head because of all of the unknowns. And a lot of the unknowns go away once you start actually taking steps. That's where you get clarity. And the book that I've written and still working on through this process, the title of it is one of my favorite, like my life sayings. And um, it's all roads lead to Rome, which is, you know, a proverb, so to speak. It is a medieval sentiment, but it still holds true. You know, in the ancient world, almost every road in Europe led back to Rome because the Roman roads were so 
well-built. And that was a well-known proverb is every single road you can, if you want to get to Rome, just get on one of the Roman roads and it'll lead you there. And it's sort of a way of saying there's various routes to get where you need to go. There's not one perfect way to get there. So no matter if you're lost on whatever road you found yourself down, no matter how far down you've gone, there's always a way that you can take a turn at the next crossroads and take a different path that'll get you where you need to go, no matter how far away you seem to have gotten. There's somebody out there who's been in a similar situation as you who's managed to do it and, and you can do it too. So. And that is the perfect place, I think, to end Mm -hmm. today. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us today. Where can people find you if they want to connect with you? Sure. So I'm on LinkedIn, Alexandra Brack, and I have an Instagram as well, which is just at Allie Brack. There will be more to come, but for now I'm on LinkedIn and Instagram. Perfect. And I will put links to both of those places in the show notes. That way people can find you, follow and connect with you and follow along on your story. I would love that. Thank you so much for having me, Heather. Are you tired of barely squeezing life in thinking, shouldn't there be more to life than this? Do you want to get to the next level, but without losing yourself in the process? Are you ready to start thinking and doing differently so that you can stop doing the same things over and over and over, hoping for a different result? If any of this speaks to you and you're ready to do something about it starting now, book a call with me to find out how I can help. Go to lifeandlawpodcast.com forward slash free call.